Here at the Nerd By Word, there have been a sizable swath of news stories that we haven't gotten the chance to cover yet. So we're pulling double duty today with a Byword Big Talk comprised of additional nerd news stories that we think you need to know about. The first ever nerd news giant-sized journalism extravaganza starts now. Welcome into a different type of episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. The past few weeks have been littered with big-time news developments in the nerd world, so we're taking the entire episode to keep you filled in on the 411 of fandom. So today's Byword Big Talk is going to feature each of us reporting on three additional stories, but first, the most pressing stories are reserved for the traditional segment known as... Dave, duty calls. Yeah, and duty it is, only not D-U-T-I, if you ask me. So uh, this is kind of an older bit of news, but one that kind of snuck by me completely, especially in the recent avalanche of uh, Activision news, uh, particularly, you know, sexual harassment lawsuit and all that's going on at Activision Blizzard right now. So this little news nugget, slipped past me. It was originally reported in April uh, by video game website Kotaku. And that is that now every single Activision studio works on Call of Duty to some capacity. Uh, From the report, Activision-owned studio Toys for Bob announced that it was going to provide development support for the latest season of Call of Duty Warzone. The studio had previously worked on its own games, such as Crash Bandicoot 4, but has now effectively uh, been consumed by the ever-growing monster that is Call of Duty. With that move, all nine studios directly owned by Activision are part of the Call of Duty machine in some capacity. And so uh, the article goes on to list, obviously, Toys for Bob. Uh, Raven Software has been uh, providing support for Call of Duty since 2010. Activision Shanghai is working on Call of Duty Online. Demonware does server support for Call of Duty. Um, High Moon Studios, which formerly developed uh, Transformers video games, helps support Call of Duty. Beanox has been working on Call of Duty ever since Black Ops 3. And of course, Infinity Ward, Treyarch, and Sledgehammer have been taking turns developing Call of Duty games for the last decade. Even the Blizzard arm of Activision Blizzard uh, sells uh, Call of Duty uh, games on its digital store. And King, uh, the mobile game developer that Activision bought for $5.9 billion back in 2016, is working on Call of Duty games for phones. And... You know, this whole situation I find, you know, deeply unsettling because, first of all, Activision uh, has, as a company, a long history of having a fairly decently diverse lineup of video games. And now they're sort of putting all their eggs in one basket. And I understand that Call of Duty is an extremely lucrative franchise, you know, that a lot of Uh, money is to be made here but at the same time they own studios that have the ability to make absolutely great 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 games outside of the call of duty brand if you look at raven software alone uh, alone they made stuff like um hexen star wars jedi knight jedi academy and marvel ultima alliance back in the day so the idea that all of these different studios are slowly being gobbled up by the call of duty machine rather than being able to put you know their their stamp on their own franchises and their own ideas and their own games is you know, extremely sad to me. Chris, what are your thoughts? Dude, I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't know Call of Duty was still a thing, I guess. Um, I just phased out of that that uh, part of my that time in my life. Like that, you know, was the first Call of Duty Modern Warfare. I think it was like the fourth game. Like that was a substantial amount of my freshman and sophomore year of college. But 
I know they made subsequent sequels. I just didn't realize what a monster it still was until this news story popped up in the feed. Like, it's just crazy to me. Like, we're we're still here. Like, they're they're still doing that. So, yeah, I have little to no interest in the game. Um, <clears throat> I think it's it's probably marketed towards like the general pop gamers of dudes who like shoot them up military style games and and that's just i'm not the target audience and so to be taking away you know resources that'll make a diverse group of games that'll you know <clears throat> pitch to multiple different audiences and, and and kind of spread the net if you will like it's it's kind of disheartening that we're all just focused on the big money grab from the gen pop that's 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 kind of suck and the thing too is like Toys for Bob in particular, they, you know, they did deliver, you know, Crash Bandicoot for It's About Time, which is, you know, really a return to form for the Crash Bandicoot series and probably the best thing, you know, that that particular franchise has produced since, oh, I would say the original, you know, trilogy back on uh, on PS1. So they're, they're incredibly capable and have a really, really good grasp of, of stuff like Crash Bandicoot. And, and to take them then and just, you know, let them be gobbled up in this Call of Duty machine, which, you know, I'll freely admit military shooters are not my thing. But, you know, to each their own. It, my, my concern primarily is just that developers that can do so much more than just provide support for, you know, Call of Duty development are now being stuck doing that because they just happen to be owned by Activision. Yeah, and I don't want to come across as like this gatekeeper or anything like, oh, that thumb my nose at anything. It's just like we're getting less variety of games and that sucks. Yeah, I totally agree with that, Chris. Now, talking about variety, uh, you have a new story that makes my heart beat a little faster. Oh, man. Dave, it's the moment we've both been waiting for. <clears throat> Our candlelight vigils directed at a variety of avian pantheons of gods and goddesses have finally paid off. Dave, we're finally getting a Black Canary movie featuring Journey Smollett. Woohoo! That's right, a Black Canary solo spin-off film for HBO Max is in the very early stages of development with Journey Smollett set to star and Lovecraft Country co-worker and showrunner Misha Green set to pen the script. On her various social media pages, Smollett posted, Guess the Canary is out of the cage. So excited to finally embark on this adventure with my creative soul sis at Misha Green. Hashtag Black Canary. Hashtag Dinah Lance. Hashtag Let's Go. Ah. Green tweeted, we're just at the very beginning of a long journey to the screen, but obviously I couldn't turn down the chance to put the damn in the black damn canary with Journey Smollett. I mean, so there's not a whole lot of news to report other than the fact that this is happening, but I mean, like, I, I, I'm just, and I, I can't even put into words how excited about this I am. But Dave, honestly, I didn't think this day would come, but cheers to us, man. I think this is a great example of non-toxic fans on social media repeatedly yes. asking for something and actually drawing enough attention to something to get it without acting like entitled little jerks. I think the movement around, you know, asking for a Black Canary feature has been um, overwhelmingly positive and unlike some other movements has not, you know, made it a point to try to slam other movies or other movie makers in an effort to get their movie made. And I think that's really, really great. Uh, it's really, uh, um, I think, uh, a way of showing how it should be done. So it was a really, really positive social media campaign, at least from everything I've seen. And I'm so glad that it actually uh, worked. Um, Journey Smollett was really a show stealer uh, in um, the Birds of Prey movie. Uh, I know that was really, in a lot of ways, Harley Quinn's movie. And, you know, Margot Robbie is great, but um, Journey Smollett was really, just really stole every scene that she was in. And I'm such a huge Black Canary fan anyways. Um, I'm just really hoping that this, you know, gets the, the, the full backing of Warner and they, they, you know, put some effort into this. I would be absolutely fascinated in seeing, you know, Oliver Queen, Green Arrow kind of popping up in sort of a supporting role, the romance between Black Canary and Green Arrow sort of legendary 
And as much fun as certain seasons of Arrow on the CW were, others less so, the one thing that never quite got right on that show was the relationship between between Dinah and between uh, and Oliver. So to me, uh, this has all the potential in the world. It could be really cool little guest spots that they could bring in. She uh, legendarily has a great you know friendship with Oracle Barbara Gordon. That would be a lot of fun to see on the big screen on the big screen uh if in fact they end up deciding to go that route i know they're saying hbo max but i would rather see this on the big screen to be honest with you um th- there's just so much potential here and i'm very 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 excited to see where they go with it and and just one final point let's raise a third glass to the icon that is gail simone because she was the most ardent supporter of this movement on social media as far as like a celebrity so um just another reason why Gail is the best. So uh, Black Canary fans rejoice. Totally. And uh, I'm really hoping that they actually have some conversations with Gail Simone, who I think is one of the the best um, Black Canary writers that DC has had. She has a really, very, very strong grasp of this character. Um, they really should sit down and have a conversation with her before they go into production here. Yeah, absolutely. That harkens back to one of my big points from our episode before last of bringing in the people who actually know what they're doing when you're making comic book movies. Oh, absolutely. All right. That wraps up nerd news proper. But when we come back from this, our first break, we're going to hit you with three more stories each. I'm telling you, it's been a lot over the last couple of weeks. So uh, we've got a lot to get you caught up on, but stick around. All right, folks, we are back here for our big time segment. That's right. It's time for our. And as we teased previously, we are kind of making the byword big talk this week. Just an extra, extra read all about it. Nerd News Extended Edition. So we each picked three big stories over the past couple of weeks that we haven't got a chance to talk about on the show and, you know, give us a couple of quick takes about it and thoughts and things that we're excited about, worried about, what have you. So Dave, what is first up on your uh, stories we missed out on list? So you may uh, remember uh, a few weeks back, I kind of belly ached extensively about the fact that Marvel and DC Comics have sort of stopped really doing intercompany crossovers. Um, They did those uh, on and off for quite a while back in the 90s. And then we had the, uh, you know, DC versus Marvel. We had uh, Avengers versus uh, JLA. Um, there were some really, really cool crossovers happening, and then that sort of fizzled out, and now um, each company is sort of guarding their quote-unquote IP rather than doing you know really fun things that the fans might enjoy. So it was very interesting because I know there were some rumblings that James Gunn had said that he would really enjoy you know maybe doing a, a, a crossover cinematically between uh, the two properties. Um, he mentioned even that he would really enjoy making a Harley Quinn Groot crossover, uh, which sounds absolutely hilarious, to be honest. Um, but, you know, when when filmmakers uh, say these kinds of things, it's very much the same as when, you know, comic book writers say these kind of things. You know, comic book writers frequently on social media are constantly saying, you know, I really would love to write a crossover of these two characters. I'd like to have some kind of crossover opportunity again. It, you know, frequently raises it's hit because it's such a fertile ground for interesting storytelling. Uh, so James Gunn saying this was, you know, yeah, that would be nice, but, you know, what are the odds? Well, it turns out that MCU architect Kevin Feige has now weighed in on this possibility. Uh, he was speaking uh, to comicbook.com in an interview and was asked about, you know, the possibility of such a crossover. And rather than dismissing it out of hand, uh, here's what he said, and I quote, Well, look, my standard answer to things are never say never. I never thought we'd get this far. James has not brought that up. James is deep in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 that will begin filming before the end of this year. Having finished a spectacular suicide squats and selling that movie, uh, he's well underway on prep for Guardians 3. 
Now, the fact that he is saying never say never is almost mind blowing to me. You know, the, the notion that we could have, you know, that the door is open if, if the corporate synergy can align, uh, that the door is open to actually maybe do a movie that features DC and Marvel characters, that Kevin Feige has an open mind towards something like that is. You know, I'm, I'm incredibly positive about that. Now, a lot of work would have to happen for something like this to actually occur. However, um, seeing sort of a positive attitude from the MCU side of things, you know, if Warner can get their ducks in a row, you know, we could years down the line actually have a DC and Marvel cinematic crossover. And I would, I would so love to see something like that. What do you think, Chris? Oh, absolutely. And I think it would go a long way into uh, at least hopefully kind of putting out some of the fires that are, you know, the toxic fandoms. And that would that would I think it would go a long way of building camaraderie amongst, you know, the nerd community. I mean, like one of the biggest things that, you know, even even in us making this show is you don't have to be an either or fan. You can love both. You can love all things, as long as you're not a jerk about it. So, I mean, like, I think this would just unleash so much storytelling potential. I mean, just think about the universes that they're built in. Like, you have, like, Gotham City and and Metropolis, but, like, what happens if you get Captain America going to Metropolis, and how does he interact with Superman? They're kind of, you know, for all intents and purposes, carbon copies of one another, at least personality-wise. Um you know, so just like, what would that be like on the screen? Uh, it'd be fascinating to watch. And we don't get near enough of it on the page. And to, just the thought of it coming on the screen is just makes your imagination run wild. Can you imagine, you know, if Warner puts their nose to the grindstone and actually really puts, you know, together a very good, you know, Justice League movie, and we could have some kind of Avengers Justice League crossover on the big screen. It would absolutely blow my mind to see those interactions taking place because, you know, we are really starved for those kinds of stories at this point, even in the comic books. Yeah. So seeing something like that on the big screen, I mean, you know, what does the, how does the meme go? Shut up and take my money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, Chris. So your first uh, extra, extra story uh, brings us uh, full circle back to the MCU. What have you got? So we got the final um, trailer for the Eternals film, which is set to release in theaters in November. Um, and it was it really delivered a lot, in my opinion. So um, the first one was, you know, by uh, by its name, a teaser and didn't reveal a whole lot. It seemed uh to give a lot of the same MCU kind of vibes of, you know, humor cracking wise, you know, and it's just some, some general overarching things, but this one really, really gave us some, some meat and potatoes. There was a plot reveal about the deviants, which if you're even loosely familiar with the comic space, you'll know what the deviants are, but, um, you know, a lot of fans were speculating, why didn't you get involved with Thanos and the snap and all that? And so, like, they directly say that you can't interfere. We've been instructed not to interfere unless the deviants are involved. And, then, you know, by who? And then it just goes straight into a celestial. Like, they did not bury the lead at all. Like, we get a full-on celestial shot. Um, some awesome power set flexes from uh, Icarus and Thena. Uh, this cast, I mean, this was my initial reaction when I saw even the, the casting confirmations. The cast is incredible, and I cannot wait to see more of their chemistry on screen. Um, also, friendly reminder that Richard Madden has the coolest accent ever, and Rob Stark will always be my king. Um, screw the Red Wedding. <laughs> um, but I'm just super excited to see this movie, and they really kind of peeled back the curtain and, and delivered some punches with this last trailer. So I'm super excited for November to roll around, and hopefully it'll be released on schedule. Yeah, um, you know, the thing the thing about the Eternals is uh, a I don't know a whole lot about the comic, and so the initial trailer didn't really sell me very well. I think this trailer did a much better job to kind of give me a sense of what I'm in for, and it is a very interesting angle on the whole superhero story, you know, this, these ancient beings, you know, basically immortal having lived among us for thousands of years. I think there's, 
there's really fertile storytelling ground there. And I'm very interested to see what they do with it. I think I'm now um, more excited than I was previously, just based on the first trailer and what little I know about the comic book property. So um, I also want to say that a lot of the shots in the trailer look really, really beautiful. Uh, There's some very, very strong directing going on here. I think this movie has a, a very distinct look compared to the rest of the mcu you know some mcu movies have a very stock feeling except if they're very specifically experimenting with something like the first doctor strange with its whole reality bending thing they really tried to experiment a little bit with the look of the movie but beyond that i think you can put a spider-man you know mcu movie next to an ant-man mcu movie and they kind of feel of the same cloth the eternals on the other hand i think has a very very interesting look and i'm very interested to see how that unfolds on the big screen chris well that's it's funny that you mentioned that because you know that was a big addition to this trailer was academy award-winning director chloe zhao and so i i'm super excited this is the first time that we've had I, I, if memory serves of an Academy Award winning director in an MCU film. So I am super excited to see what she delivers here. You know, in addition to the fact that I know precious little about the Eternals as a whole. I mean, I can, I can draw, you know, some inferences based on, you know, names like Icarus and Thena and Phaistos and, or Fastos and, and, and things like that, you know, they're, they're loosely based on mythological characters throughout, you know, storytelling of human history. But I've also heard amazing things about the current comic run by Kieran Gillen and Asad Ribic. So I'm definitely, I read the first issue and I loved it and I just hadn't got back to the series yet, but I've heard, I've heard raving reviews for that series. So I'm definitely going to check that one out too. All right, Dave, you are going in a direction that I am wholly unfamiliar with. You're hitting up the anime cycle. Yeah, um, you know, I've never been as deep into anime as some people I know, but at the same time, I have a real soft spot for it. Um, when I was growing up, I was particularly interested in, in you know, um, the original Sailor Moon anime, which really got me, you know, deeper and deeper into the whole anime thing. And I still quite regularly watch stuff. Um, even though my tastes sometimes skew a little older, um, I, I love Japanese culture and I love how it is represented in their uh, in their cartoons. So uh, I very uh, well remember how often uh, it was difficult to get a hold of uh, anime because so much of it stayed in Japan and never really left. And I, I can't even count how often I tried to watch something and I ended up uh, watching uh fan subtitled uh, episodes where fans would actually go in and they would upload the video and put, you know, subtitles on them because that was the only way you would get a hold of some of these things um, to be able to watch them outside of Japan. But, you know, things have changed a lot over the last couple of decades. And, you know, now we have streaming services specifically aimed at anime fans, specifically Funimation uh, and Crunchyroll. And, here we go. Things are definitely changing because now we're getting sort of a giant-sized uh, streaming service for anime fans. Sony, which owns Funimation Global Group LLC, is now acquiring Crunchyroll from AT&T. So basically, we're getting a merger of the two biggest streaming services aimed at anime fans. Uh, these two uh, are going to come together for the first time ever. I mean, not you know, they kind of work together back like in 2016 or so uh, in in a partnership. But this is like you know they're they're owned by the same company, and that's going to change things um, you know significantly. Um, so Sony uh, shared in its press release that it planned to combine both Crunchyroll and Funimation to make one anime streaming platform. Though it's unclear when this will take place. And both will remain separate in the meantime. Um, the new merger allows Sony to, quote, create a unified anime subscription experience as soon as possible, according to chairman and CEO of Sony Pictures. 
Uh, he added, we are committed to creating the ultimate anime experience for fans and presenting a unique opportunity for our key partners, publishers, and the immensely talented creators to continue to deliver their masterful content to audiences across the world. Now, Crunchyroll, uh, according to Newsweek, has about 5 million subscribers and 120 million registers, registered users of its service. And Funimation um, has 800 titles available in its growing catalog with its anime series available in 49 countries across 15 platforms. The company has not disclosed how many subscribers it has. Um, What's really interesting is that both of these services also simulcast episodes of the latest anime content, uh, giving fans access to subtitled episodes basically right after they air in Japan. Imagine, man. It's incredible how fast we now can get access to these things. But having these two companies merge on the one hand, you know, is going to provide sort of a one-stop shop for anime fans. Now you don't have to go to one or the other um, or, you know, have to subscribe to both. On the other hand, you know, you always have to worry about the notion of monopoly and how this is going to create sort of a gatekeeping service and how they're going to select which content is simulcast, which content comes to, you know, the United States and which content doesn't. Chris, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so like I said, I don't have a whole lot of background specifically on anime, but I think just from a business perspective, that's that and then the ripple effects of this merger is the thing that I'm going to be following most closely. There are, are several animes that I have my eye on that I, I, I may dip my toe into. But I think the the overarching thing that I'm more fascinated to watch develop is is what's the ripple effect of this and how does this um, influence, if at all, you know, other content creating companies like this? Yeah, I mean, you know, on the one hand, you know, this looks really interesting. Uh, it looks like a really uh, good situation for anime fans. But on the other hand, you know, this this consolidation thing that's happening, you know, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Disney buying everything that it can. Um, on, you know, you start worrying somewhat if, if one company holds the keys to, you know, all, all of these things, um, what, what the negative impact of that might be in the long term. All right, Chris, you have another new story for us. This one, another MCU story. What have you got? So it looks like Dominique Thorne will be, uh, making her debut as, super genius Riri Williams in the second Black Panther film, Wakanda Forever. Um, Variety has confirmed this after an interview with comicbook.com promoting Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Kevin Feige says, quote, we're shooting Black Panther Wakanda Forever right now, and the character of Riri Williams you will meet in Black Panther 2 first. She started shooting, I think, this week before her Ironheart series, end quote. Um... And Ironheart, for those of you who are new to the character, a.k.a. Riri Williams, was introduced in Marvel Comics in 2016 as a 15-year-old MIT student who reverse-engineered Tony Stark's Iron Man armor in order to create her own suit and has now taken over the moniker um, and become one of the most popular uh, Marvel superheroes, particularly for uh, you know younger age groups. So um, on the one hand, I'm super excited to see this new character, to see, you know, a young black superhero um, on the screen. It, it For me, it just underscores how sad I am still about Chadwick Boseman's passing. Um, you know, the more I think, think about Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, um, of course, they're keeping any and all details very close to the vest. With this, we're assuming that the remaining cast members are going to return and reprise their roles. Um, I was intrigued by the fact that Variety um, <clears throat> reported that uh, Michaela Cole was going to be joining the cast in an unknown role, and that has, you know, caused a lot of speculation, um, you know, as to as to who she might be portraying. But um, the more the, the closer we get to this film, I think just the sadness is overwhelming me. So I'm not exactly sure how I want to feel about this and, and how they're going to do it. You know, the easiest bet is probably Shuri as Black Panther. Um, although there are several other theories and I, I just don't know what the right way to go about it is. I don't know what I want to see in this film is it's just caught as excited as I am to return to Wakanda. It's kind of like um, a bittersweet feeling, you know? 
Yeah, I know where you're coming from with this. I'm I'm really concerned about this movie in a lot of ways. Um, I don't think there's really a, a right way to, to go for, for the MCU here. You know, on the one hand, uh, they could have, you know, recast T'Challa, but that would have felt a little bit disrespectful. On the other hand, you know, you don't recast. And what are you really left with? A Black Panther movie without the Black Panther? How How do you structure this? What is the the driving force of your, of your story. Um, and at the same time, how do you represent on the screen, the grief of, of all the fans that, that, you know, lost a great, great part of their lives in, in Chadwick Boseman. And at the same time, you know, also mourn the, the, the fact that T'Challa's story was cut short. I mean, the movie means so much black Panther meant so much to so many people and to see that cut down and cut short, um, how do you move forward from that? And I don't think there's necessarily a good answer or a right answer, which is what makes me really concerned about this movie. I'm, I'm sure there, I'm sure in the brainstorming sessions, everybody was just kind of sitting there quietly because where do you go from here? Now, putting in Riri Williams as a way, you know, um, to, to sort of introduce that character, uh, I think that's that's fine. That's certainly interesting. Um, I'm very interested in seeing that character in live action. But at the same time, it just gets me back to the same question: what What is this movie? What What is it going to be, and how is it going to you know encapsulate all of this? You know, the the joy of of you know Wakanda existing in in you know in live action the the fascinating cultural stuff but at the same time also the the mournfulness of the loss of, of Chadwick Boseman I I don't know I don't know what they're what they're going to do with this movie Chris and it's it's got me a little I guess worried ambivalent I'm not sure how to feel about this movie yet yeah the the only thing that really kind of gives me kind of beacon of hope is the fact that that Ryan Coogler is still, you know, in in the director's chair and and he's writing the script and he's you know still the creative voice behind it. So if there's any person that I trust to do this I don't even know how to terminalize this the 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 right way, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, um you know, I I trust his creative voice. Um, you know, based on his other projects that I've seen in addition to Black Panther, I, I really enjoy his work. So um, I, I think that's the the one big thing that I'm leaning on is, is Ryan Coogler. Yeah, and I think that's probably fair. All right, Dave. Um, so it's kind of a role reversal here. You've got an MCU story for your third and final one. Yeah, you notice I always try to diversify big time. You know, I have the the whole Marvel DC crossover thing, a little bit something about anime earlier in the show. I talked video games, but you know, you can't stay away from the MCU completely because there are a lot of things happening right now. And the story that probably has me uh, most excited right now is that in the wake of Falcon and Winter Soldier, yes, Anthony Mackie has finally closed a deal to be the star in the upcoming Captain America 4 and so we are going to see a continuation of Sam Wilson's journey that was really, um, you know, kind of shown how he came into his own as Captain America in um, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So now that he is Captain America and now that they have, you know, announced this movie, uh, Captain America 4, I was sort of, you know, sitting on, on pins and needles wondering what in the world was going on with this movie because nobody had closed a deal. And nobody had said anything about, yes, it's going to be definitely an, you know, Anthony Mackie in the starring role. So I'm sitting here waiting, like, what are they doing? Are they going to try to bring Chris Evans back? Are they going to ignore the whole, you know, uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier reveal? Like, what are they doing? So that they finally closed a deal with Anthony Mackie, that, that, uh, that makes me very, very happy. Now, they have not announced much else about the movie. They're tentatively calling it Captain America 4. Um, we have not heard anything about whether Sebastian Stan is coming back as Bucky Barnes or Emily Van Camp is coming back as Sharon Carter, which I think, you know, both of those are sort of musts given, uh, the way the, the story unfolded in, in Falcon and Winter Soldier. I think, um, we need to put a good supporting cast, uh, around Captain America. Uh, that's really when, you know, any Captain America, even Steve Rogers really shined 
uh, in his own movies. I mean, Winter Soldier is probably the best of the bunch, and he had a very strong supporting cast around him. I think uh, Anthony Mackie deserves the same kind of situation. So I'm just really, really excited that, you know, Anthony Mackie, that Sam Wilson gets to shine as Captain America on the big screen. I, I think that sort of thing is way overdue. So, you know, kudos for making the right decision to to Marvel and the MCU. And I can't wait to see this movie, Chris. Yeah, I'm excited about it, too. Um, Falcon and the Winter Soldier of the three, I guess four for counting What If, was probably my least favorite of them. Um, it took on a very big thematic thing with you know race relations in america and it fell flat at least in my opinion on a lot of it um i think the quick redemption of john walker um left me the most cold uh, i i needed to see him you know deal with the consequences of his actions a little bit longer um so i could have used maybe a couple more episodes to draw that out um so i'm definitely intrigued to see where they go with this hopefully they give more time for sam to shine i felt like he was playing second or third fiddle in his own show um i'd also like to see um joaquin torres return and actually take on the falcon suit and moniker as he does in the comics and uh, it was a nice little nugget but i wanted to see more of that so maybe you know we need a couple more episodes in order to do that but hopefully we'll see that in this film um i i am excited about it and and i just want more for Sam uh, and screen time, because I felt like he was having to play catch up way too much. I think that's fair. And I think in a lot of ways, the show itself felt like a transitional piece rather than a main event. Um, You know, ideally uh, just straight up storytelling wise, what the MCU would usually do if they weren't, you know, filling in holes in the schedule of Disney plus is, you know, at, at the end of, uh, Endgame, you know, Sam gets the shield and the next movie he pops up and he's Captain America, right? So the fact that they took this journey of kind of showing how he didn't want to and, and kind of came around to the idea eventually is, is certainly interesting storytelling, but it does feel a little bit filler the way it was executed. So I'm hoping, you know, that they bring their A game for the main event with Captain America 4. Yeah, and I'm ready to say goodbye to a, a brilliant performance by by Daniel Bruhl as as Baron Zemo. But I'm ready to say goodbye to that character because there are way too many people caping for a villain and excusing his horrendous actions. Well, I think any villain that in any way you know is is becomes popular is also at some point you know fans start to excuse them. It's unbelievable how many uh, people try to justify some of the actions the Joker has taken when you hit social media, but just because they're unarmored with that character. So, uh, yeah, you know, let, let's just go ahead and he let was, villains he be was, villains. He was fist pumping in the club. Let's forgive him of his all of his <laughs> horrific actions. Yeah, really. Yeah, that's it's, it's a very, very odd situation. All right, Chris, you are going off the beaten path a little bit away from the MCU. What have you got for us with your final story? Okay, so I know this is going to be weird because, like, I, you know, I was famously a a big chicken. But, like, I don't think the Addams Family, per se, is is overly scary. It just has, like, you know, kind of spooky, you know, accents to it. But I've always been a huge fan of the Addams Family, particularly of the relationship between... Um, Gomez and Morticia Adams, and we have a new Gomez and Morticia. I love their relationship, the back and forth, the the debonair gentleman uh, um, from Gomez's part. Um, but Luis Guzman and Catherine Zeta-Jones are going to be playing the characters in the new Netflix series Wednesday, uh, which uh, stars Jenna Ortega in the titular role of Wednesday Adams as she goes off to school. And so Catherine Zeta-Jones and Luis Guzman are going to be playing her parents. And I didn't even know that this show was happening. And so kind of like a spinoff. So Netflix is sucking me back in, you know, like the old Michael Corleone. Every time I think I'm done with Netflix, they pull me back in. And I can't think of a, a more perfect casting for these two. I mean, I am I am so nostalgic for... Um, the portrayals by Angelica Houston and Raul Julia, Lord rest him, 
really, also, this news just really made me miss and think about how underrated of a talent Raul Julia was. I mean, Dave, you remember how terrible that Street Fighter movie was? Yes, and, but and he's still, so he's so, he so damn good. good. He's so damn good as Bison. Oh man, I love Raul Julia and one of the most i think one of the most underrated acting talents in the history of hollywood but um yeah so i'm super excited about this show um something about the adams family and its weird quirkiness and sarcastic snappy witty banter always spoke to me as a kid you know even if it was a little bit spooky um but i'm super excited to see this this show come to screen yeah i'm very interested in this as well um I'm I'm wanting to say the Adams family started as like a uh, a cartoon, a series of cartoons in like the New Yorker or something. Uh, it's been a while since I looked at the Adams family history a little bit, but I really always appreciated the art and and the bizarreness of of the way the original art was presented. I hope that rather than trying to imitate the the Adams family big screen movies, that they really go back, you know, to those original cartoons and the original art and try to you know um capture some of that in this series as well because there's really something there a quality that i don't think has come across in any of the adaptations um now obviously wednesday adams i I think we can agree that the definitive uh wednesday adams at least so far has of course been christina ricci and i think there are and i think there's probably a lot of fans that are a little sad that she uh, is not reprising the role for this project uh, because I know fans have been clamoring for uh, for many years for her to return to the role as sort of a grown-up uh, Wednesday Adams, which would have been absolutely fascinating to see. But I think the casting here is extremely smart across the board. And if you're trying to you know build something new and a little different, then you know it's. I think it necessitates stepping a little bit away from previous adaptations and previous performances. Let these actors and these writers sort of make it their own. I am I'm excited for this. I'm a, I'm an Adams Family fan, not maybe as much as some other things. Although I will say again, you know, the the quality of those original uh, cartoons, that original art, there is something there that I I really would like to see captured once. Yeah, for sure. And and you know, it looks. I'm I'm looking up a, a quick Wikipedia search because you you know, made me think. I I haven't seen Christina Ricci in a whole lot in recent years, but it looks like. At least according to her Wikipedia page, she's made a focus on television for, uh, you know, since 2011. And then as a person who doesn't watch a whole lot of of television, that would make sense as to why I haven't seen her a lot on the screen. All right, that wraps up our Byword Big Talk for this week. That's a lot of news, so we'll give you time to digest. But after you come back from this break, we're going to hit you with two more nerd commendations. All right, we are back for our final segment. We have each picked a piece of nerd media that we want to share out with you. Dave, what do you have for us this week? So I'm going to go back in time a little bit to uh, my misspent youth in Germany. Um, I came across uh, a translation of the debut novel of a British science fiction author uh, back in the 90s. Um, And in fact, uh, I think this book didn't even make it to the US until like the year 2000. Uh, It's by Michael Marshall Smith, although he occasionally writes just under Michael Marshall when he's uh, writing, you know, more conventional thrillers and not weird science fiction. Uh, So Michael Marshall Smith's debut novel, Only Forward, and, you know, I have scoured the internet for the, like, the official descriptions. I read, you know, the book jacket since, you know, I have repurchased a book after coming here. And none of what is actually on the book jacket or the summaries that I find on, like, Amazon or Goodreads even remotely capture this book. This book was hugely formative to my science fiction loving heart because it is so strange and, and weird and out there. Um, the basic shape of this, of this story is that it appears to take place in the future. We have a first-person narrator by the name of Stark who works as sort of a, a private investigator and is hired to find a missing VIP by the name of Fel Alkland. 
And he's able to find this guy fairly easily, only then he finds out that Mr. Alkland has nightmares. And this, of course, happens to be one of Stark's specialties. What we get is an incredibly surreal book uh, in, in at least two different ways. First of all, the future uh, that Michael Marshall Smith here envisions, where the world is sort of divided into districts, and each district has its own theme. So he, for example, lives in the colors district, where everything is color themed and people coordinate and the walls actually like change color to match the colors of the clothes you're wearing as you're walking by. And um, it, it's absolutely fascinating and weird in the best possible way. And then there's a real deep undercurrent of like dreams and what they mean and where we go when we dream and if if it's a different you know world that we actually inhabit and and how our our dreams affect us um, and how our nightmares can affect us. There there is so much good stuff uh, going on in this book. It's so out there and it really got me interested in science fiction beyond, you know, the Star Treks and Star Wars of the world to stuff that is much more experimental and odd um, and, and has a real quality to it. The writing of Michael Marshall Smith in this novel is incredibly sharp and has some of my all-time favorite lines in it, uh, period. Uh, one line um, that I don't think I've ever quite forgotten um, and I, I extra got the book back out and was able to find it very quickly because I remember the spot it occurs at. Uh, he writes, everyone's alone in their world because everybody's life is different. You can send people letters and show them photos, but they can never come to visit where you live unless you love them. And then they can burn it down. It's just, it's, it's deep, but at the same time, it's just so weird and odd and and I love it for that. And I never really quite have forgot the impact it had on me uh, as a teenager when I read it for the first time in German translation. So when I came to the U.S., one of the first things I did is I I, I was I went and you know to seek out this book again and purchased it right away uh, right away again and reread it in English. And it's so very good and it still holds up so very well. I cannot recommend this book uh, highly enough. Only forward by Michael Marshall Smith. Dude, I'm super psyched. Like, this is giving me, like, Fahrenheit 451 vibes. I love weird, trippy, futuristic sci-fi, and, and I'm in. The cover The cover alone, the book jacket or the cover, like, that minimalistic, symbolic stuff, the muted, oh, I'm here for it. Yeah, there's so many great observations in this book, too. I just, I can't speak highly enough of this. It's one of my, you know, in my top 10 favorite science fiction books. And I think that's saying something. You know, I've, I've read all the greats, Asimov, Heinlein. I mean, I'm I'm all over the science fiction genre. But Only Forward is a book that I keep coming back to. It's just something that really speaks to me on a, on a fundamental level. Uh, it's so, so good. All right, Chris, you are actually recommending a, a DC comic book. Could that be? <laughs> well, it's technically it's a DC young adult graphic novel. But yes, for all intents and purposes, yes, a DC book. Um, so I'm recommending uh, Nubia, a real one. Uh, like I said, it's a young adult graphic novel uh, written by L.L. McKinney with art by Robin Smith. Um, and I'm just going to read the synopsis here. Um Nubia has always been a little bit different. As a baby, she showcased Amazonian strength by pushing over a tree to rescue her neighbor's cat. But despite Nubia's similar abilities, the world has no problem telling her that she's no Wonder Woman. And even if she was, they wouldn't want her. Every time she comes to the rescue, she's reminded of how people see her as a threat. Her moms do their best to keep her safe, but Nubia can't deny the fire within her, even if she's a little awkward about it sometimes even if it means people assume the worst. Um, and there are further other further plot developments that they reveal in this initial synopsis, but I just want to give this overarching thing and why this book spoke to me and, and why, why it's important. Um, and, you know, like race relations in America in particular over the past year or two have really become like a hot button issue and, and a topic that gets brought up a lot. But what I love about this book is that it's written from the perspective of a black woman about what it's like growing up as a young black girl with abilities. And, you know, like that could be a metaphor for whatever you want it to be. But 
Nubia is this wonderful, tender-hearted, sweet young individual, and simply because of the features that she has physically of of her black skin and her curly black hair, like she is treated differently. And you know, as historians, we always talk about going to the primary sources and and reading a perspective that I could never have as as a white man. Um, reading a perspective from a black woman about what this is like. This is my experience growing up in this country. Um, it's just really beautiful. And it still has that fun, loving young adult, um, you know, kind of like probably like our, our students age, like a, a middle school age group that it's probably targeted towards, but it still brings this level of authenticity and still the fun, loving aspect of superhero books um, it's, it's, it's this really beautiful slice of life type of stuff. And, you know, with having two mothers, there's some beautiful LGBTQ representation. There's also some beautiful cultural notes. I think one of her mothers is of uh, a Latinx background. So there's, there's some, some interesting cultural notes there brought in as well, but it's just this really beautiful, like, what if the girl next door was a superhero? Um, and you, and you just like, it's, it's an internal, kind of snapshot of like her struggle not only to 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 what it's like to live with superpowers but like also just to be a normal teenager she's got a crush on a boy in english class um she tries not to muck that up like she she walks into the place where she's crushing on him and she's knocking over shelves in the convenience store because she's got super strength like so it's just just a really cute book that really has a lot of meaning and I highly recommend you guys check it out. Nubia Real One by L.L. McKinney and Robin Smith. I'm really excited that this turned out well. I always liked a Nubia character, but I felt like DC never really did anything much with her, which I found incredibly uh, regrettable. You know, there there could be so much more to this character than, you know, you know, a, a random Amazon or Wonder Woman, but, uh, you know, black. There's so much more to, to the African-American experience than that. And, you know, rooting uh, the Nubia character in that, I think is absolutely the right move. And I also want to say that I think a lot of the young adult stuff that uh, DC has been doing in the last couple of years has, you know, really been hitting a, a strong mark. I was a big fan of the first volume of their uh, Krypton set series that talks a little bit about, you know, the last days of Krypton from the perspective of, you know, quote unquote, lesser characters. I think that was extremely well executed too. So I, I'm excited that DC is, you know, reaching out to the young adult market a little bit and and really taking some of these characters like Nubia and reinventing them in a different way to reach that young adult audience. I think it's really smart uh, and way overdue to target comic books more at young people again, Chris. And while we're on the subject of the wonderful character of Nubia, we would be remiss not to give you one more news story that you may have missed over the past couple of months. And that is friend of the show, Stephanie Williams, is going to be writing the new book for DC, Nubia and the Amazons, with another one of my favorite writers, Vida Ayala, with illustrations by Aletha E. Martinez. And that first issue hit stands October the 5th. So I'm going to be lining up uh to grab that book and i hope you guys do as well so because like you said dave it is well past time that we put nubia at the forefront i totally agree and i'm really excited for that book as well october can't get here soon enough chris all right that wraps up another supersized nerdy riffic episode of the nerd by word podcast we as as always we thank you for your support and for just letting us run wild with our nerdery if you like what you hear, be sure to hit that subscribe or follow button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, TuneIn Radio, or at nerdbyword.com. And of course, please don't be a stranger. We'd love to hear what you think of the show, your ideas for future topics. You can find us on social media, uh, on Twitter, on Instagram at nerdbyword. You can also find us individually at that nerd Chris and at that nerd Dave. We love to hear from you. And as always, be sure to check out our sibling podcast, X of Words, where you can hear yours truly rant about my radical mutant agenda, amongst other things. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. 
find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Thank you.